right, so this evening we are finishing part number two of a message I began a couple of weeks ago entitled, The Consequences of Failing to Stand Firm. And when I talk about failing to stand firm, more specifically, I'm talking about the consequences that happen when we fail to stand firm in the freedom and in the grace that we have in Christ, and we drift back into a works-based righteousness. So anytime I speak on the topic of the law and grace, of faith and works, I've noticed that there's going to be a handful of people that will come to me at the end of the service, and they will come up in a very quiet tone. They will say this, so let me be clear. When you said this, what do you mean? And I've just noticed over the years, this is such a topic that a lot of times it's not necessarily what is said, sometimes it's what people think they heard in that moment. So I've learned to give disclaimers on messages like this. So here's a list. I've got four disclaimers as we are getting started tonight. So I am not saying that personal works are not important. I am saying that personal works do not justify us before God according to Scripture. I am not saying that Christians are to do nothing, which is often what I hear people get confused about. They're like, if you're just talking about grace and moving in the Spirit, that, that kind of means you do nothing. That's not what I'm saying. I am saying that our actions should flow out of and be directed by and be empowered by our relationship with God. Number three, I am not saying that God's law is unimportant. I am saying that God's law has a purpose and it needs to be used according to that purpose. The purpose of the law, as we find in Scripture, was to reveal the holiness of God, to reveal the sinfulness of humanity, to reveal our inability to live up to God's perfect standard, and also to reveal our need for Jesus as our Savior. That is what the law is intended to do. Now, number four, I am not saying that Christians who are under grace are free to live sinful lives. Grace is not a license to sin. It is not a license to indulge in sinful desires. I am saying, according to what we find in Galatians 5 and 6, that when a believer lives out biblical grace, they will be dependent upon God, yielded to the Spirit of God, lovingly serve one another, desiring holiness and righteousness, and humbly seeking ways to glorify God. That's what Paul is building the case for in chapters 5 and 6. So with all of our disclaimers now behind us, what are the benefits of standing firm in the truths of freedom and grace? I'm going to try to make this as practical as I can possibly make it here. That is the struggles that many of us will face every single day. Let's be very specific about what some of those struggles might be. Anxiety. Fear. Knowing how to respond to difficult people. Knowing when to speak up and when to remain silent. Trying to discern, God, how do I find the resources for this particular task? Those types of things that we wrestle through daily for the person who is standing firm in grace and our freedom in Christ, listen to what happens. We experience incredible peace because in those moments, the pressure to perform, 
the, the pressure to know the right thing to say at that moment, the pressure to have all of the resources to accomplish everything we sense God leading us to do. For the person who understands their position in Christ, all of the weight of that responsibility comes back off of your shoulders and it goes right back to God. There is a freedom that comes with the person who understands grace. It's not a freedom to do whatever we want. It is the freedom to do what is right. So this is not what you would call a self-help message. This is not a pull yourself up by the bootstraps type of a message. This is a God help message. This is an only Jesus message. This is a God is all sufficient message. So I am not giving you five things for you to do to help you out of your current situation. I am giving you five truths to believe, listen, that positions you in a place for God to do through you and for you and in you what you could never do for yourself. That's grace. So here's our definition of grace. We're going to pull it out multiple times tonight. Grace is God's unmerited favor where he does in us, through us, and for us what we could never do for ourselves. Grace is God's unmerited favor. The first part of that is a definition that many people have heard since they were children or since they started growing up in Sunday school and listening to Bible stories. Grace is God's unmerited favor. But uh, tonight you're going to hear why I add the other pieces where he does in us and through us and for us what we could not do for ourselves. So we've got a lot to cover this evening. I invite you to go with me in your Bibles, Galatians chapter number 5. We will be in verses 1 through 12. Verses 1 through 12. I, I'm not going to reread the text again tonight, but I do encourage you to have your Bibles open to this text. Um, if there's ever a great time to have a Bible with you, I think it should probably be when you're in church. Amen? Amen. Amen. So if, uh, if you happen not to have one, there's probably an app on your phone, or you can simply follow on the screen behind us as we go through this text. But let's, let's go to God in prayer as we get, dig in. Heavenly Father, we ask this evening that your spirit guide us into all truth again. God, may the truths of grace come alive in our hearts. God, may we be able to see in each of our lives exactly where you are wanting us to apply these truths. Lord, we get into a place towards the end where there's questions about where legalism has crept in. Lord, give unbelievable clarity to each person listening to this message. God, we need you to do that. In Jesus' name, amen. So when I shared the first part of the message, I started with an illustration about growing up and going to the beach and my parents giving a warning to myself and my brother as well as my sisters about the importance of watching out for ocean currents and undertoes. And in that conversation, I just kind of pointed out that when a kid is playing and they're splashing or jumping up and down in the waves, a lot of times they're completely oblivious to this current that is taking place just below the surface. And the only way that you can avoid a potentially dangerous situation is to heed the warnings of others, to remain alert, to choose a steady point on the beach, and then to constantly realign yourself to that particular position. I took that idea and we bridged it into this text where the text is telling us that we are to stand firm in our liberty that we have in Christ. 
Throughout the New Testament, there's multiple places where God tells his followers to stand firm. We are to stand firm in our faith. We are to stand firm in the armor of God. We are to stand firm in the unity of the gospel. We are to stand firm in the Lord. And when we get to Galatians 5, it tells us that we are to stand firm in the freedom that we have in Christ. But whenever you're going through life, and let's just be honest, apply it where you're at. You've got work, you've got family, you've got jobs, maybe you have kids, there's ball practice, there's life that's going on. When you're just going through life, a lot of times we can be completely oblivious to these currents that are happening just below the surface. There are pulls of the flesh that are happening. There's ungodly influences in the culture around us, and they gradually move us away from the positions that we have in truth. The only way to avoid a spiritually dangerous situation is to heed the warnings of God, to remain alert, to focus on the truths of God's word, and here it is, continually realign yourself with those truths. You've heard me say multiple times before, we need to preach the gospel to ourselves daily. This is one of those moments. This is this idea of if we are not constantly realigning to those truths, it is so subtle and so quick as to how the enemy begins to slide you off to the side and you don't even know he's sliding you off to the side. It's coming back into the word. It's saying, God, give me fresh eyes to see. Help me to live out the principles and the teachings that we find here in the scriptures. So what are the consequences of failing to stand firm in the freedom that we have in Christ? I gave you two of those a couple of weeks ago. Here they are very quickly once again. Failing to stand firm in freedom places us back under a yoke of slavery. This was found in verse number one. The yoke of the law, it represents slavery and service and someone else's control over your life. The Apostle Paul was saying in this text that the law controlled people so that they would do what they would be unwilling to do in their unredeemed state. According to what we find in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 11, when a person places faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior, he removes from them that heavy yoke of self-effort, and he places them under his yoke that he says is easy and his burden that is light. For that individual, they no longer need an external force like the law to control their behavior. They are now filled with the Spirit. They are led by the Spirit. They are controlled by the Spirit. They are empowered by the Spirit. Now, point number two, failing to stand firm in freedom forfeits our spiritual wealth, making us a debtor again. This was found in verses two and three. We talked about how circumcision was the badge of the law, and a badge represents the group that somebody associated with. By receiving circumcision as it was outlined according to the Mosaic law, the person was indicating that their allegiance was to the law, it was not to Christ. In that case, the Apostle Paul is saying, Christ will be of no benefit for you. By obeying even a part of the law, we find ourselves in this text saying that you're now under obligation to the whole law, or as another translation would put it, you are a debtor to the whole law, verse number three. When those two phrases are taken together, we see that a person who chooses the law over Christ, they lose the riches of what they have in Christ, and they become a debtor to the law once again. That's where we left off a couple of weeks ago. So here's the new information from there. 
Point number three, failing to stand firm in freedom removes us from the blessings of grace. Failing to stand firm in freedom removes us from the blessings of grace. Now, we're going to find this in verses 4 and 6, 4 through 6. So as we get into this section, I want to take just a moment and let's go back to our definition of grace that I've already mentioned. It's already in your notes. Here it is. Grace is God's unmerited favor where he does in us, through us, and for us what we could never do for ourselves. Now, the first part of that, once again, is a definition of grace that if you look up the word grace in a biblical dictionary, it will give you this idea of unmerited favor, unearned favor that comes from God. But I don't know if you all have noticed it or not, but a lot of times when we think about grace, we connect grace and salvation. Grace and salvation, and a part of the reason we do that is because the Bible tells us that you have been saved by grace through faith. And so oftentimes believers are thinking, well, grace, salvation, like I've already got that, now let's move on to something else. But what I want you to see tonight is the fact that grace is not only necessary for us to be saved, grace is necessary to live as a saved person. Grace is necessary for our sanctification. Grace is necessary for sustaining power. Grace is necessary for the strength to endure. All of those things come through grace. So let's start with that first definition. You might just want to write these references off to the side, but I want to help you see why I brought out some other aspects of grace there. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 describes grace in the context of salvation. It simply says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Now, in the context of salvation, every single born-again believer in this room can testify that God did something in us, and he did something for us that we could never do for ourselves. Let me give you some specifics on that. He quickened a dead spirit, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and 5. He illumined a deceived mind, Romans chapter 3, verse 11. He drew us to himself in repentance, based on John chapter 6, verse 44. Every bit of that was unmerited. There's nothing on our side that we did to deserve it. There's nothing that we did to earn it. It is the unmerited favor of God. He did in us and for us what we could never do for ourselves. Here's another reference. 2 Corinthians 12, 9. It describes grace in the context of enablement or strength. This is probably one of those passages that, if you're like me, you go back to and you read whenever you're going through a difficult time that just doesn't seem to go away. And it's like you've been praying about it and praying about it and praying about it, and it just keeps sitting there staring you in the eyes. And you're like, hey, God, I'm praying again about the same thing. Did you know you and I are not the only ones to have those types of moments? Here's what happened to the Apostle Paul. 2 Corinthians 12, 9, he said he prayed three times for God to remove what he called the thorn in his flesh. Three times. Do you remember God's reply to him, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Now, we know contextually 
he is not talking about the need for grace in the context of salvation. He's talking about the need for grace in the context of strength to endure trials. He, he's needing God. Actually, what he wants is God to take the trial away. And what God says is, my grace is sufficient. My strength for you is sufficient. I will do in you and through you and for you what you cannot do for yourself. I will give you the ability to endure this. My strength is sufficient for you. My grace is sufficient. God did something for him in that. Here's another one that you could put off to the side in this context of enablement or strength. It's 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. It tells us that we are to be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Did you know that there is a strength that comes from God in the context of grace? Okay, some of you don't, aren't getting what I'm saying, so we're going we're to break this one down even further. Are you worn out? Have you been facing problems maybe in your family that just don't go away? Is there a knothead or two at work that just gets on your last nerve? Are you dealing with issues with your children? You're like, I have no idea what I'm supposed to do here. Are you facing a physical illness, a, a disease, a problem that, that you don't know how you're even going to get the strength this next week to do the basic things that need to get done? Have you been going through those things for a long time and you're like, God, I got nothing left? He's got, I got grace for you. I've got strength for you. I've got enablement for you. Here's the thing I love about God's grace. He doesn't have to use leftover grace from last year. There's fresh grace to meet you with the fresh trial that you're facing. Have you ever heard somebody make this statement before? God will not put more on you than you can handle. Okay. Apparently, by the shaking of heads, you've heard somebody give you that before. Can I just tell you, that's not biblical. I can tell you where they got it from, but they misquoted Scripture. According to what we find in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 10, the context of that is that God will not allow you to be tempted, tempted beyond what you were able, but with the temptation, make a way of escape. He did not say you will not face trials and problems that are about beyond your ability to endure. In fact, listen to what the Apostle Paul says, 2 Corinthians 1.8. He says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we despaired even of life. Did you get that? Paul said, hey, maybe you all were like me and didn't know this, so I don't want you to be caught unaware. But in Asia, man, we were going through some stuff. We didn't have the strength for it. When we are not strong, the grace of God sustains. God can do in and through and for us what we could never do for ourselves. 
Now you might wonder why in the world would God let his children go through things beyond their ability to endure it? Did you know in the very next verse he tells us why it happened? Listen to this, it's so beautiful. He says, this happened so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. I love that. He's saying there's a reason why God lets us go through those difficult moments. And he's doing that so that we stop trusting ourselves. Did you know that you were at the center of every bad decision you ever made? (laughs) Now that doesn't give us a whole lot of hope about the decisions on our our horizon, does it? We understand based on, on what it says in Scripture that we are finite in our wisdom. We don't have all the resources. We don't have all of the knowledge. We don't have unlimited strength and ability But we have a God who does, and he keeps saying, trust me, trust me, trust me. I'm going to let you get into another difficult situation so that you stop trusting yourself and you begin to trust in the God who raises the dead. Depending on ourselves robs us of the power of God. Here's another passage to write down, 1 Corinthians 15.10. It talks about grace in the context of God's ongoing work in us. Listen to what it says. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is in me. Just pause there for a moment. For those who think that grace is a license for laziness, The apostle Paul said, I worked harder than any of them. And then all of a sudden he catches, it's like he catches himself. He's like, actually, it's the grace of God in me that worked harder than any. Hebrews 4.16, it describes grace in the context of what we need in times of need. It says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. It's God doing in us and through us and for us what we could never do for ourselves. Finally, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 7. It describes grace in the context of what needs to be manifest through us. He says, but as you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and all earnestness and in love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. Those who have received grace are called by God to extend grace. You say, I can't do that. Like, I, I can't show grace. You don't know how bad that person hurt me. You don't know what they've done in my life. You don't understand the offense that they brought against me. Listen, it's not you doing it for God. It's God doing in you and through you and for you what you could never do for yourself. Do you recognize the beauty The joy that comes when we understand grace. The Apostle Paul is bringing that up because look at what it says in verse number four. All of those pieces I just described. He says, you have been severed from Christ. You who are seeking to be justified by law. You have fallen from, here it is, grace. Boy, that's a confusing moment. Those two phrases, being severed from Christ and having fallen from grace, it it almost sounds as though the person has lost their salvation. But we understand 
that strong theology is not based on just pulling one text out. It's based on seeing theology within the whole of Scripture. So we know he's not talking about this group losing their salvation. He's talking to believers of the church of Galatia. We know that because at least nine times in the book of Galatians, Paul calls his readers brethren. Brethren is a term that's used for people within the family of God. Paul said in Galatians chapter 4, verse 6, And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. He would not refer to them as sons of God if they had lost their salvation. In verse number 7, he shifts his language towards running. The Apostle Paul never used running terminology to tell people how to be saved. He always used running terminology to teach Christians how to live as saved people. The heart of the issue, if you'll remember, since we began studying the book of Galatians, is how is a person justified before God? God is the one who does the justifying. And did you know scripture never indicates that God unjustifies a person? In fact, Romans chapter 8, verse 30, write the reference down. It shows a very specific, sovereignly controlled chain of events. For those whom God predestined, these he also called. And whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. The consensus of Scripture teaches that genuine salvation is forever. So what exactly does it mean when it says you have been severed from Christ, you who are seeking to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace? What does that mean? Think of it in the conversations that you might have with people who you're not sure of where they stand with God. They, they speak terminology of Jesus sometimes. They'll quote a verse here or there, but... You look and sometimes like their life does not seem to be that of a Jesus follower. There's a lot of people who are admirers of Jesus. They like some of his teachings. They like how he lived. There's some who are followers. If you've been on social media, you know that follower does not mean relationship. Amen? Amen. Amen. Like there, there's a lot of followers out there. doesn't mean that you actually know that individual. So people would follow Je Jesus for different reasons, and we could see that all through the Gospels. The religious crowd followed him out of curiosity and out of contempt. Sick people followed him because they wanted to be healed. The disciples followed because they believed he was the Son of God. In John chapter 2, verse 24, Jesus talks about a crowd who was following because of his miracles, but even goes on to say he did not entrust himself to them because he knew what was in man. Following does not necessarily mean a person has trusted in Jesus as Lord and Savior. The question is not, does someone follow Jesus? The question is, are they trusting in Jesus alone to make them right before God. That's what justification is about. So now let's say there's a genuine believer who has now stumbled into or they found themselves in an area of legalism. They're depending upon works in order to accomplish a sanctification of their hearts. By depending upon works-based system to mature them, they are not fully depending upon the grace 
that God has given to sustain them. For that person, according to what Paul's saying, they've fallen from grace. But listen to this. They've not fallen from access to grace. They've fallen from appropriation of grace. They are depending upon themselves to do in the flesh what only God can accomplish in the spirit. They're not relying upon what God has provided for them. In verses 5 and 6, Paul describes a believer enjoying the blessings of grace. I want you to look at the contrast. I'm going to stop constantly as I read through this. He says, for we through the Spirit, not the law, not being forced by the, we through the Spirit, by faith, not personal effort, not doing the best I can, by faith, are waiting for the hope of righteousness the completion of being transformed into the character of Christ that will only happen when Christ returns. For in Christ Jesus, that is our spiritual position, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything, but faith, not personal works, working through love. When we live by grace, we depend upon the power of the Spirit of God. When we live by law, We are depending upon our own efforts. Here's the next one, and these next two go by very quickly. What are the consequences of failing to stand firm in the freedom that we have in Christ? Number four, failing to stand firm in freedom causes us to lose our direction. Verses 7 through 10. Now, the Apostle Paul was very fond of using athletic illustrations. Um, He used the phrase here, you were running well. Whenever the Apostle Paul first established the church in the region of Galatia, he established it based on the truths of the gospel. They received those truths. They were running well. In fact, he even says over in chapter 4, verse 14, that they not only received those truths, they treated him like an angel that had been sent from God. He says in chapter 15 that they were willing to sacrifice greatly to care for his needs. But then by the time he gets to chapter 4, verse 16, he says... Why are some of you all treating me like an enemy now? How do you go from being treated like an angel sent from God to now being treated like an enemy inside of three verses? He's about to tell you. He says in verse number seven, here's the literal translation of this. You were running well. Who cut in on you so that you stopped obeying the truth? That that phrase, in the Olympic races, runners were to stay in their assigned lanes. But if you wanted to try to get your competitors off of their track, you would lean into them, pushing them out of their lane and causing them to use extra effort. So here's what Paul is saying. He says, these Judaizers, they cut in on you. They leaned in on you. You were put in the lane of grace. You were running in that lane well, and they leaned in on you, steering you into another lane. Now you're running back in the lane of the law. He goes on in verse 8 to say, this persuasion did not come from him who calls you. (laughs) He says, the one who called you put you in the right lane. The Judaizers cut in on you, pushing you back towards the law. Now he changes his figure of speech in verse number 9. He says, a little leaven 
leavens the whole lump of dough. Stop right there. Okay. This is either where we're going to fill my email account or there's going to be some people to get freed up tonight. I'm going to prefer the latter if you're wondering which one I would prefer. So what a beautiful illustration of what legalism will do. A little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. As I shared this morning, leaven or yeast in Scripture is often used of influence, many times evil influence. If you want a couple of references for this, Jesus used the picture of leaven, of sin, and he warned about the leaven of the Pharisees, Matthew 16, verses 6 through 12. The apostle Paul used leaven as a symbol of sin in the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Leaven is an incredible example of what legalism does. All it takes is just a little bit coming in. And it'll impact the entire assembly that is around it. Oh, listen. Like leaven, legalism may go undetected for a while, but it will eventually poison an entire church. He starts this by saying, Stand firm in the freedom that you have in Christ. It's a warning that is coming to us from God. Stand firm. If we're not standing firm in our freedom in Christ, legalism will cut in on us, getting us outside of the lane of grace and making us lose our sense of direction. So here is a hard thing I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to ask every single one of you to take this question to God this next week in prayer. God where is legalism infiltrating my life? And sit with God with that. Ask God to point it out. I sometimes jokingly and yet not jokingly say I am a recovering legalist. I think for the most part, Christians as a whole are recovering legalist. And here's one of the reasons why I say that. Everything in our life, in our world, revolves around works-based acceptance and reward. From the time you're little kids, you're taught about discipline. Do the right things, you're rewarded. Don't do the right things, you're punished. You go into school, you find out that you study and do well, you get good grades. You don't study and do well, you get bad grades. You try out for sports. Those who practice the hard, hardest, those who have the greatest talent, those who perform, they get a chance to play. Those who maybe don't perform as well, they don't get a chance to play. Everything in our world is based on this reward of if you do it, you're going to be rewarded. Think about jobs. Think about careers. Those who work harder, they get the promotions. They get the raises. They, all of that is a workspace system. And then you come to faith in Jesus. And he says, you can't work this out. You can't do it yourself. I have done 
what you need, and I'm going to need you to trust me to live that through you. And then all of a sudden you're like, but I can help here. No, you can't. You're going to mess that up. But if you give me enough time, if you give me another week to start, if you give me enough resources, I'll, no, you won't. We are who we are. We have what we have by the grace of God. When we understand what legalism does, legalism keeps pointing the finger back and saying, you know what? Starting tomorrow, you can do it. You now know what you messed up this last week. So you can do it tomorrow. And we start making our list again, and we get ourselves worked into this works-based righteousness, trying to manifest a spiritual maturity in our lives that only God can bring about, and us trying to do it by ourselves. Here's a part of the reason why we cannot do it. If we try to do it, we will take credit for it. One day when we get to heaven, we can take no credit for what God has done. So he keeps directing us back saying, let me live it through you. Let me live it through you. Now, this is the point in the message when people are saying, now, Paul, let me make sure of what you're saying. Are you telling me that we are to do nothing? No, that's not what I'm saying. Here's what I am saying. We start our day by saying, God, help me to know you. We start in relationship. We continue in relationship. Moment by moment, situation by situation, we submit ourselves to God. We go to him, dependent upon him, and we say, God, I need your wisdom here. Would you help me to understand what I need to do here? God, I need your strength in this moment. God, would you live that strength through me? God, I don't know how to address this person, this situation. You do. I'm going to submit myself to you, and I'm going to trust that you will live your perfect will through me. Here's what will happen. You'll find out when you're trusting God to live in and through you what you can never do for yourselves. He gives you a lot to do. The issue is him directing, him empowering, him leading the way. So by the time it's done, when that person says, man, I got no idea how you knew what to do in that moment, you could say, I didn't. God did. Have you ever talked to somebody who has gone through unbelievable trials and maybe there's been death of a child and you look at him you're like, I got no idea how you did that. How many times does that person come back to you and say, it wasn't me. It was God. I couldn't have done it myself. It was God. That's how it's supposed to be. That All the credit goes back to him. Here's the last piece. Failing to stand firm in freedom removes the offense of the cross. This is found in verses 11 and 12. The key phrase is then the stumbling block of the cross has been abolished. Failing to stand firm in freedom removes the offense of the cross. The cross of Jesus Christ is offensive to a lost world. It's designed to be offensive to a lost world. Any attempt to make the gospel more palatable is one in which we often try to downplay the cross. We, we try to form syncretistic lines of saying, well, here's what you believe and here's a, a belief in Christianity and those two things align together. And sometimes we're trying to weave together this fabric of religion that is neither Christianity nor helpful for somebody. The cross is designed to be offensive 
The cross reminds us that we were sinners. We were not mistakers in need of correction. We were sinners in need of a savior. The cross reminds us that our sin has consequences. Romans 3.23 tells us the wages of sin is death. Death is what we earned for our rebellion against God. The cross reminds us that our good was never good enough. If our good works were enough, then Jesus died needlessly. The cross points to our inability. Jesus did for us what we could never do for ourselves. The cross reminds us of our limitations. The cross is a symbol of humility. It is humbling to know that you could not do what needs to be done and somebody else had to do it on your behalf. It's humbling. It's humbling to know that even on our best days, our righteousness was like filthy rags compared to God. The cross is a symbol of exclusivity. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. When you think of the cross, you do not think of Buddha. When you think of the cross, you do not think of Muhammad. When you think of the cross, you do not think of Abraham. When you think of the cross, you think of Jesus. And it is offensive to people when they hear that there is no other name that has been given among people by which we must be saved. It's Christ and him alone. By mixing law and grace, it was saying that Jesus' sacrifice on the cross was not enough. His sacrifice needed to be supplemented by our efforts. Paul is saying, if you preach law and grace together, the stumbling block of the cross has now been abolished. He finishes with this phrase, I wish that all who are troubling you would even mutilate themselves. Okay. By the way, sometimes we have this picture of a Christian cannot share hard truth. Um, I don't know that the Apostle Paul got that memo. <laughs> Here's what he is saying in this. Those who want you to be circumcised to become sons of the law, he's saying... I wish the same people would cut themselves further, spiritually castrate themselves so that they would stop producing sons of slavery. That's a word. That's not one that you see on a greeting card most of the time, but that's a good word for somebody who understands grace. He's saying, I, I wish they would stop doing to another generation what they're suffering under the consequences of themselves. What are the consequences of failing to stand firm? It places us back under the yoke of slavery. It forfeits our spiritual wealth, making us a debtor again. It removes us from the blessings of grace. It causes us to lose our direction, and it removes the offense of the cross. So he begins with these words, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, we ask that 
the truths of your word may be truths that we live, not just hear, not just amen, not just agree with. God, may they be our life. And Lord, we recognize that these particular truths can be hard. God, everything inside of us has this tendency to move towards works-based acceptance. And God, that's not the gospel. Lord, protect us from ourselves. Help these truths to come alive in practical ways in each of our lives, and God will be thankful for what you do there. Lord, may we be believers who stand firm in the freedom that we have in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you all. Have a wonderful rest of your night. We'll see you this next week.